Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 930 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. Let's pray. Good Lord, this is so exciting to be here. For you are present with us. We are so grateful for each one around us, the faces, the bodies that surround us, Lord. These are sisters and brothers that you have gathered together. So Lord, move your spirit, your enlivening, wise spirit among us and bind us together, Lord, through your word. For that is the only sure thing in all of life. Your word that comes to us filled with life So help us to listen and to follow together Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I came here in 2008, um, June of 2008. That was my first first week here, June 4th, I think it was. I'll have to look that up. That's a long time ago. And that same year, later on in the year, uh, His Majesty Carl XVI Gustav, King of Sweden, came to Flint. And I thought it was all for me. (laughs) He came to Flint to dedicate, as you remember, the Flint Center of Energy Excellence. Remember that project that produces alternative energy from the city's wastewater? Have you forgotten about that already? He was welcomed when he came by federal, state, local dignitaries, by the governor, by Flint's mayor, by U.S. senators and state representatives, by the U.S. ambassador to Sweden, the Swedish ambassador to the U.S. He was greeted by corporate presidents and CEOs, university presidents and provosts, foundation presidents and reps involved in securing the funding for that project. He was greeted by members of various Swedish, of course, and Swedish-American chambers and associations and societies, as well as, and maybe you were all there, but maybe it was as this large contingent of university students and members of the Flint community. Do you remember this? I was thrilled to be in Flint. The king of Sweden has arrived. The speeches that day were filled with praise. 
praise for the king's graciousness in visiting Flint and supporting this project, a collaborative work that would benefit the city of Flint and our environment. Politicians, candidates, sitting presidents of the United States, we all know what it means when a dignitary comes to visit. The first visit from a sitting president to Flint, Michigan, was 1936, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in the throes of the Great Depression. And on that day, he was welcomed by 150,000 people. 20,000 packed like sardines in Atwood Stadium to listen to his speech. The welcome was filled with shouts of praise, with honoring speeches that he and his hope-filled presence in the midst of such depression should come and visit us. A president, a king. We all know what it means when a dignitary comes to visit, when, when one who holds power to, to inspire, to, to make or break the life of our community comes to town. And you know what? Things were not much different in ancient times. Oh, there were some differences, but... In the Greek and Roman and Jewish culture, when a city was visited by a dignitary or representative of a ruling power, a proper reception was in order. Demanded, in fact. It often included the, the minting of new coins to commemorate the event, new taxes to pay for the event that would require not only pomp and circumstance, but, but a sprucing up of the city's entryways and main thoroughfares, like mm, replacing and leveling the bricks on Saginaw Street. There would be flattering speeches prepared by municipal officers, the social and religious and political elite to, to express gratitude for the character, the nobility, and the great works of the dignitary who stooped to come and visit little old us. It'd be one of the rare historical moments when the New York Times would use a 96-point typeface four times in history. While in our culture, while in our culture, counter-receptions are the norm. Protests and disruptions, making alternative statements, even, even disparaging statements about the coming dignitary and, and the state of things, that was not the case in ancient times. Not only was it a proper, a proper reception expected, it was the honorable and life-preserving duty of a city to do otherwise. To fail the duties of a proper welcome would shame the visiting representative who was known to hold the power. A scenario that resulted in disaster for a city and its populace. Only a few such accounts of that kind of refusal exist in the ancient records because the cities and the peoples that did refuse were besieged and destroyed. Lesson learned. 
Through the gospel story, like stanzas of a poem, Luke has moved us to where we are today with Jesus arriving at his destination, Jerusalem. And it's been quite a journey. With the miraculous events surrounding his birth, his origin story, that as divine, God's beloved son, but at the same time human, the son of David, the ancestral line through which God's promised deliverer, the Messiah, was to come, Luke begins his story poem with Jesus in Jerusalem, right at the beginning. And with poetic license, he sweeps away 20 years to when Jesus was about 30 years old and began his work, temptation resisted, first sermon rejected, teachings and deeds of power done in Galilee, his home district. Throughout his telling, Luke shares two mixed sets of responses, that of wonder and praise, contrasted by concern and contempt, foreshadowing, no doubt, the future of this man of paradox, Jesus, who was prophesied as his birth to be both the falling and the rising of many. This one who was not able to be pinned down or pigeonholed neatly into any pre-shaped niche. At stanza 9, verse 51, with his reputation preceding him, Jesus takes a turn south, literally, the face of Jesus turns away from the Galilee and toward Jerusalem. And Jesus tells all his would-be followers that, that to step in line behind him would be no cakewalk. He appoints messengers to go out before him, to enter the towns and the villages and the cities he intended to pass through on his way back to Jerusalem, to go ahead and announce his coming so that, so that the townspeople might be ready to receive him in proper fashion, proper fashion, as the representative of the mighty ruler who brings peace and wholeness to the land and to all people. From that point on, 951, we travel with Jesus at a walking pace, a three-mile-an-hour pace, amid teeming crowds that seem to increase with each passing city until Luke says they gathered by the thousands and were trampling over one another. Jesus has come to visit us. He walks on, stopping here and now there, and there we are, at his heel, among the entourage of disciples, just listening and watching and caught up in the excitement, being welcomed with enthusiastic shouts of praise, being castigated and tested, opposed and eyed with malicious intent. He walks on, poetry in motion, and we are there, in that ragtag band of merry followers caught up in his sublime movement, wondering, wondering, where is this all leading? Oh, we know we're headed to Jerusalem. 
But once we're there, then what? We can only imagine the grand reception with dignitaries and speeches and crowds and streamers or confetti and banners and shouts of acclamation and songs of welcome and fireworks that await Jesus and us upon his arrival. Jerusalem. In word and in deed, Jesus deftly reveals the look of life under God's rule. Three mile an hour pace, revealing the look of life under God's rule. Words telling stories of God's own character, stories of lost sheep and coins and children, and of the prodigious shepherd and woman and father whose tenacious commitment is in finding them. Stories of mustard seeds and leaven and faithful servants and shrewd managers. Stories about being alert and prepared and of poor old Lazarus finally at rest in Abram's bosom. Here he casts out demons and loosens the tongue of the mute. There he heals the cripple, and there the lepers, and there the blind beggar who cried out over the hubbub his welcome as Jesus neared his city. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Wherever he goes, he draws near to all, talking with them, eating with them, walking with them laughing and crying with them, even calling one of the town, one whom the townsfolk despised down from his perch among the tree branches to come and dine with him. The healthy, the ill, those sound in mind and those whose minds were ravaged by confusion and terrors, the Jews, the Samaritans, the Greeks, the gay, the straight, the queer, the trans, and the ones who lived, the ones who, who were good law abiders, the sanctimonious pious, and the ones who lived far away from the law. Jesus invites them all to draw near to him, even as he draws close to them. Until finally, Today, Luke lands him around the corner from his destination, Jerusalem, the magnificent city, the center of the universe, the very place where God resided on earth. It's masterful. From beginning to end, Luke's poetic rhythm is so tightly woven. It, it, it's not just the cold, hard facts of a reporter, not sterile calculations of mathematicians and scientists, but, but more like a poem. He, he writes as a poet, a, a poem lyrically woven to carry us along so that we too might engage with Jesus, might hear his call to draw near so that we too 
might wonder who this one really is and watch everything that he does. Remember way back when, when Jesus turned his face to go to Jerusalem and had sent messengers ahead of him to the towns and cities he planned to pass through so that they might be prepared for his arrival? You remember? The towns had responded. And the crowds were there to welcome him. His emissaries had done their job. They they brought the news of his, his coming and reports of his mighty deeds done in the name of the Lord. Here comes Jesus representing the word and deed of God's rule. Through this one, Jesus, mercy. The mercy of God, the mighty one, falls like a gentle rain over the land and her people. Deaf ears hear, hungry tummies are fed, crippled legs are straightened, muscles are strengthened, blind eyes see, battered bodies are tended with care, minds are unclouded, spirits are bolstered, the the poor and the lowly are lifted up and are given seats of honor. Through this one, Jesus, mercy, The mercy of God, the Mighty One, falls like a torrent to fell and cleanse the land of all that turn from welcoming his entrance. Through him, many will fall and many will be raised up. The implicit question for each town, each person, will you welcome him? or neglect his arrival to shame him. There's a poet I really like, R.S. Thomas, a good Scotsman. Gets our Presbyterian hearts pitter-pattering a little bit. R.S. Thomas writes this, Josh. It's a poem called The Kingdom. It's a long way off. But inside it, there are quite different things going on. Festivals at which the poor man is king and the consumptive is healed. Mirrors in which the blind look at themselves and love looks at them back. And industry is for mending the bent bones and the minds fractured by life. It's a long way off. But to get there takes no time, and admission is free if you purge yourself of desire and present yourself with your need only, and the simple offering of your faith, green as a leaf. Had he written it on Palm Sunday, he may have written green as a palm from He's coming. He's coming. And with unbridled excitement like that of a child unable to fall asleep on Christmas Eve. Okay, unlike Paul unable to fall asleep on Christmas Eve. The announcement of his arrival, the telling of his wonder-working power, the invitation to welcome Jesus is now given. Jerusalem. Jesus is coming. 
And Luke's poetry moves at this moment to the rhythm of a small, dark, obedient donkey foal now freed from his usual tree tie whose hour had come. This, by the way, is the hour that all donkeys have been braying about ever since. And with shouts about his ears and cloaks and palms strewn before his feet, he lifts one dusty hoof after another, moving forward into the holy city in concert with the man who rides so lightly upon him. The hour had come. The donkeys, the man's, hungry ones, the despised ones, the broken ones, the poor and ragged of both countryside and city. The hour had come. The officials and the elite of the towns of Jerusalem. The word had been brought, had come forth announcing his coming, but it is quite clear that the grand reception was not there. There were no municipal banners, no fireworks, no streamers, no confetti, only a smattering of disciples, Luke says, disciples singing praises to welcome him. And all the social, religious, political officers described by Luke as the chiefs, priests, scribes, and leaders of the people, well, well, their speeches, their, their moment of grand speech were only demands that Jesus silence his disciples to stop this nonsense. Who was he, after all? In the face of Rome, the emperor, Pilate, his representative, the one they welcomed in grand and boisterous fashion, lest they be besieged and destroyed. Who was he, this man riding a donkey, after all, but nothing but a backwoods hick? Who was he? but one who broke their laws, their laws in favor of one that, that wrested status and power from their hands in favor, in favor of giving them, along with everyone else, a towel instead, so that they might wash one another's feet, might tenderly, lovingly care for those in need. Who was he, after all? Who do you think you are? A king? Ha! You're but a poor and humble man riding not atop a mighty stallion, but on a lowly donkey. You have not conquered others with the might of armies, but rather you welcome conquered and conqueror to, to sit at the same table. Who are you? We demand black and white answers, and your actions, your words, introduce gray. We demand might and right, and you talk of humble servitude? 
We demand cold, hard facts about who's in, who's out. And you give us an introduction to poetry. And knowing the fate of those who turn aside from his appearing, all Jesus could do was weep. I asked them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide, or press an ear against its hide. I say drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out, or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to the chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. <laughs> 